You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 24th day of September, 2011. And as always, I'd like to ask the listeners to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past four years, and links to other alternative media websites, including GRTV.ca, where people can find, and I'll put in the link in the documentation section for today's episode, the link to my latest and greatest effort, the GRTV Feature Interview Podcast Series, which is available through GRTV.ca. And I hope people are tuning into that because each week we are having feature-length interviews that are really fascinating with some very fascinating people, including this week's, I think, personally, very, very interesting conversation with Tom Secker, the documentary filmmaker behind such documentaries as 77 Seeds of Deconstruction and now 77 Crime and Prejudice, both of which are available for viewing in their entirety on grtv.ca. And I certainly hope people do check that out, as well as the interview, which I think is quite thought-provoking. I would also very much like to commend to my listeners' attention the extremely important story broken by BoilingFrogsPost.com this week of the release of the names of the two CIA agents that are operative in the case uh, that's been brought to light by who is Rich Blee at SecrecyKills.com. And for people who have been following this story, you'll know what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't, of course, the Who is Rich Blee podcast documentary is being created by the producers of Press for Truth, that very influential and very important 9-11 truth documentary. Well, they are now producing an audio documentary, which uh, got them in trouble with the CIA because they actually name, name the names of two of the CIA agents in that documentary who are uh, in question. And basically, these agents were responsible for deliberately stopping the information, uh, vital information going from the CIA to the FBI in the lead up to 9-11. But Sabelle Edmonds over at BoilingFrogsPost.com independently did the investigative journalism, had her sources confirm for her uh, four different ways that the actual people involved were not uh, Michelle and Francis, as they've been referred to in the literature, but are in fact Alfreda Francis Bukowski and Michael Ann Casey. And those are two names that I hope researchers will take and run with and start to find out more about because, again, very interesting histories behind them. I encapsulated some of this information in an article uh, on the Corbett Report this week called Who is Audrey Francis Thomason about an original idea, speculation about who this Francis character might be. And as it turns out, it was someone different. At any rate, you can get all of the, uh, the links and the information from that article. So I will commend that to your attention. And I really hope that people are paying attention to Boiling Frog's post, some incredible investigative journalism going on and really people like Sibel Edmonds not only risking the threat of jail but from the CIA for releasing names like this but also of course as listeners to this podcast know really putting life and limb on the line to bring this information to the public so I certainly hope people are using that as a valuable resource for investigative journalism and of course supporting supporting Sibel in, in her efforts with Boiling Frogs Post as I am attempting to do with 
the eye-opener report. And this week we have, a, I think, a pretty hard-hitting report on the 10th anniversary of the anthrax uh, inside job attack on America. So again, a lot of uh, very interesting material coming out, um, and I'm very honored to be involved with a lot of it. So certainly it is my intention to keep doing that as long as I can, and I do that with your support, uh, either by becoming a subscriber to The Corbett Report and do- making a monthly donation, or, or purchasing a copy of the 2009 Video Archive DVD. But as always, we have an incredible amount of uh, information to go through in today's episode, so let's get straight into it. Welcome, my friends, to episode 201 of the Corbett Report podcast, Education 201. Anyone who has been listening to this podcast for any length of time will know by now that the Corbett Report is primarily concerned with the question of education. Now, there's a straightforward sense in which we can say that the podcast itself is a type of education in that we are learning new facts each and every week. Sources and figures and facts and numbers and dates and names and all places and all sorts of things that we learn week in and week out. And I certainly hope that listeners are taking away new things each week and are using the documentation list to further explore some of the sources that I use to, to garner some of that information. And I, th- I hope that's valuable in and of itself. But I think there's also a meta level in which we can say the podcast is about not only learning, but learning how to learn. By going through sources and trying to vet out those sources which are reliable and those which aren't, trying to take a look at different interpretations of given sets of facts and try to determine which ones logically follow and which ones are inconsistent, I hope by by applying that process to different topics week after week after week after week, eventually, not only the listeners out there, but myself as well, start to learn how to construct arguments in a more coherent and more logical fashion. And without that, without that understanding of how to put together a set of facts and how to understand which facts are relevant and which facts aren't, which facts are likely to be true and which are likely misinformation that are designed to lead us down blind alleys, without that understanding, how can we ever approach the freedom which is really the core goal of the Corbett Report? Indeed, freedom can only be attained on the bedrock of mental liberty. And mental liberty is predicated on the ability to learn and to educate ourselves. Because certainly, the Corbett Report is the result of autodidactism. I I have never been taught how to do anything related to this podcast. I've never been taught how to set up the microphones or, or to run a website or anything of that sort. Each and every single thing I do related to the Corbett Report is self-taught, and I certainly hope that the listeners can take that as an inspiration, that if I can put together this just with the, the amount of learning that I have, then certainly each and every person in the audience is capable of doing at least as good a job as I do. And that's why I like to think that the Corbett Report is empowering in that sense as well. Now, on the topic of education, we have covered that topic quite specifically and quite uh, quite explicitly in a couple of previous episodes. For example, episode 22 on the schools are becoming prisons and episode 73 on the smartening up of society. But as today's title, Education 201, I hope indicates, I'd like to move to the next level of the conversation about education, how it can free us, and really where we can take ourselves on this journey of self-education. Now, of course, when we set out to propose a solution to a problem, i.e. the problem of the miseducation of so many of today's youth and even adults in this society that treats everyone like not only children but prisoners, 
I think it is always healthy to start by defining the problem. If we don't exactly understand what it is we're facing or how it's been constructed or why we are in this system in the first place, how can we ever hope to get out of it? So there is a sense in which we can take a look at raw data and raw facts that we can garner from various headlines to establish the problem of the indoctrination of youth and even, in some senses, the real imprisonment of youth in the education system. And we see that from all sorts of different headlines, like student kills self after suspension over legal drug, or more than 25% of children now on chronic prescription medications, or it's official, SpongeBob SquarePants is making our children stupid, or student dies after police use taser at University of Cincinnati, or California bans unvaccinated children from class. All of these different data points, and of course I'll put in the links to each and every one of those articles so you can explore them at length in your own time. As I say, each and every one of these articles are data points that together start to make up a bigger picture of what it is we're facing. We're not only facing uh, an education system that fails to educate our youth in a proper way, but that is actually really set up to imprison, enslave our children, not only mentally, but sometimes physically, through violence. This is, of course, a hor horrific turn of events and one that is to be absolutely deplored and one that we must work to change. But again, I think these data points are, are certainly interesting and we certainly do need to be keeping our eyes on the headlines for these types of stories so we have a better understanding of where our society is heading overall. But I see an even more insidious problem in the fact that society itself doesn't seem to recognize these stories as problems, or if they do, then it's just a certain story in a certain place on a certain day that gives rise to a certain amount of outrage, but people generally aren't connecting the dots and seeing the overarching system of control that's being slotted into place. And unfortunately, it's being introduced to us in such an insidious way that it's just being introduced as part of daily life. And unfortunately, although there are some of us who have gone through the system and are a little bit older and wiser and recognize it for what it is, certainly the children of today who are growing up in that system and who have never experienced anything different will not know that it is unusual to be being treated like prisoners in this education system, which really has only come to be in the, in the state that it is in the last century or two. This is not a natural state of affairs by any means to just give our children up to the state for several hours a day from the time they're basically able to, to walk and talk until the time that they're supposedly grown-up adults who really can't fend for themselves because they've never been taught how to fend for themselves. This is not a natural state of affairs, and this is not a state of affairs that has held sway in our society or our civilization at any other time in history, really. Education has always primarily fallen on, on the parents' shoulders, i.e. the parents have always taken the education of their children as their responsibility. But we are increasingly being taught that that is a strange state of affairs and that we should just give our children over to the state and let them basically be their, the children's guardians from the time they are able to walk and talk. Now, let's start addressing this problem and really defining the, the outline of what the problem is with a very specific example. Earlier this year, I had the chance to talk to James Roberts. Now, James Roberts is a teacher in the public education system in the UK, and he got in touch with me because he was seeing the very worrying ways in which even his his main profession, the, the chemistry teaching profession, was being overwhelmed by 
the insertion of various global warming, man-made global warming talking points, i.e. he was no longer really teaching chemistry, he was teaching carbon dioxide, and that was definitely not the reason he had ever gotten into teaching, so he was quite concerned by these developments, and concerned by the way that well, no one really seemed to be complaining too much about the way the curriculum had been completely taken over with this man-made global warming propaganda. So we had a very interesting conversation about his experiences, and I will, of course, put in the link to the interview so you can go and listen to the uh, interview in its entirety. But I'd like to listen to a part of that conversation where he reveals a very, very worrying development in his school that passed completely unnoticed by both the faculty, the students, and even the parents of the students. And, well, as you can hear from this uh, interview clip, I was rather disgusted by this turn of events. So I, I assume then that this is not just a case of man-made carbon dioxide causing climate change. I mean, I assume there must be many other aspects to the indoctrination that these children are receiving. Oh, well, yes, yes, there are. Um, well, the, the one I, well, the first one I sent you, sent you uh, the textbook to which uh, was the first one i noticed was the one about biometrics in schools and um a couple of years ago um our school now has uh, introduced a fingerprint system where you have your fingerprint registered and you instead of having to pay money to the person selling you lunch you have to put your fingerprint on a machine put the money in the machine and then use the fingerprint and i think it was introduced to us as going making it more convenient for everyone and just making everything quicker um and well from my experience it doesn't i don't think it particularly makes anything quicker because you just have to queue up for a machine now and the queues in the lunch hall are still just as long and take just as long because the students have to still select their food so i don't think it works from that point of view however it does mean that students um students will register their fingers uh, fingerprints and um i think that as they're young they probably think that this is normal um and it's not just the and it's not just the head from the school that's uh sort of condone this it's also in the science textbook um and once again it's quite one-sided um it's about a boy who likes using biometrics to get books from the library because they're quicker and more because uh, it's quicker and more convenient I'll, re I'll i'll read a passage when i've loaded up when it's loaded at the page but uh that's quite one-sided um there's also um uh, there's also bits in the science textbook about how vaccines are useful um but it doesn't mention anything about possible um mercury in them um, there's also thing. There's also things about genetically modifying crops to produce insulin, um, and it says that you know it might be better to get it from milk actually. But then it still says um, that there is a lot of overpopulation, and um, genetically modified foods might um, might help reduce the overpopulation problem. So there's there are plenty of things in the in the science textbook and also being introduced into the school. And it means that as and I have refused to um, give my fingerprint over to the system, which means I can't really buy any lunch at school. Um, I have to bring mine in. And uh, the only thing you have is an honesty box in the staff room where you can get a cake if you put 70 p in. <laughs> That's better. Wow. That, that so, yeah. is all so horrifying, but the fingerprints especially so. I mean, to me, that is absolutely a nightmarish thought even to have, let alone to, to know that that's actually implemented and that so many people have accepted it. Are you the only holdout or are there others? Um, I've, I've not really made it that public. Everyone I've spoken to, uh, has done it, but, uh, and it, I can, I don't know about any other students. I'm not actually told, uh, spoken to many people about it. Um, there wasn't, there wasn't any, I didn't think there was any sort of, uh, opposition to it when it was introduced. 
either. So, um, so you were there during the rollout of this program. I was there. It was announced in the staff room. It was just sort of, uh, I think it was, it was, everyone just took it as a, it was yet another thing to listen to before you had to go off and prepare for your day. Really. It wasn't really, uh, there wasn't really much time given to oppose it or say anything about it, but, uh, I just refused. What about to... the parents? How were they involved in this? Well, I don't think, um, I don't think I've not heard about any parents complaining about it. No, I've not had any students come and tell me that, uh, say anything about the biometric system. They, I think they've just all accepted it. Although, um, well, I was just, I was at reception one day and I overheard the receptionist, um, rolling off the list of everything that the student had bought to, uh, that parent. Um, because um, from the conversation, it sounded like she'd given the student £20 at the beginning of the week and they'd already spent it. So I think that particular parent liked the idea because she could keep an eye on what their, uh, their child was buying. Um, but that's the, well, that's the only sort of um, parental not feedback I've got that you know it seems like one parent likes it because she can keep an eye on what the children are buying. But uh, that wasn't actually mentioned to uh, mentioned to us the only thing that was mentioned it'd be quicker and simpler oh and also that the image of our fingerprint would not be stored it'd be stored as um a code so it'd be quite hard to get the image of our fingerprint um um but it wasn't mentioned that we'll have uh, anyone keeping track of what we're buying um although it seems like the parents seem to like that uh, as she could find out why her child is spending so much money on the on the on the lunch food so, yeah. Well, surely this, this program could not have been introduced just with a note home with the child one day to say, oh, by the way, we're going to take their fingerprints. I mean, there must have been a meeting or something. I mean, I just, I can't believe the amount of apathy around something like this. Um, I, I, I didn't hear about any meeting. Um, I'm, that's not to say that one didn't happen, but um, from what I've seen, there, is, there was a lot of apathy. There was apathy from the staff when it was announced, and there was apathy... And it's not a talking point amongst students, and uh, there are still plenty of students who get it, who get their lunch, so they must have given their fingerprint in. I, for some, somehow, there just seems to be been a lot of acceptance of it, um, and I'm not sure why. Um, um, there's, I mean, there's, it's been done across the country, and I've, I've sent links of, um, I've sent links of government documents, and um, there's someone's written a, someone's written a post. Uh, referring to people who oppose it as Luddites, and they said a statistic, apparently 98% of parents uh, of children in schools with biometrics accept accept it. I don't know where that statistic came from. Um, But there's also blogs opposing it. So I know that someone opposed it. Someone's written a blog post opposing it. But at the school, it was just just accepted. Um, And everyone was told it would be quicker, simpler, and their images won't be stored anywhere. The images of their fingerprints won't be stored anywhere. It'll be stored as a code. That's uh, it. It seems to be accepted. There may have been a meeting about it, but um, I, I didn't know about that. That's I mean, that's just so sickening. I I, I would yeah. I would almost be I, I I feel like I should be enraged about the program itself, but I actually just feel so sick to my stomach that there are so many people who not only don't question it, but don't even think to question what's going on or what biometrics is or why it's being applied or what it means that people can be tracking every purchase that you make or how this is being indoctrinated into children who are going to be the future of a society, which is obviously going to be facing these types of questions and how to implement this technology on a societal scale. It's it's so overwhelming to me. And, and to think that people are not questioning this really makes me despair more than anything else. Well, yes, it's... um. I, it's yes. I know. I yeah. I don't know why the, I don't know how it's happening. Um, 
But uh, I think I think it's happening from all angles apart from schools. For example, I mean, I don't watch much TV. Um, there is there is a point. There. I don't watch much TV, but um, I do watch Doctor Who. And uh, I don't know if you know if you've been following Doctor Who at all. Um, um, my parents are British, so I oh, I'm possibly. well familiar with Doctor. It's Who. a British it's a British institution. Well, in the new in the new series, there've been um, there've been in fact the first. Uh, in fact, the second and third episodes. There was well, in the first episode was a two. It was part of a two-parter. There were some aliens all across the world who people can't remember they've seen. So what the doctor does is he um, he installs a chip in people's hands, which has a recording device that um, they can record what they're saying when they see the they, they see the alien. So when they see an alien, they switch it on and say that they've seen the alien. So um, it seems like. Um, you know, he's installing a chip on their hand, which is um, the next stage in biometrics, having, uh, you know, chipping people. And then there's another episode where someone gets a black spot on their hand and it turns out that for good reason they're taking a, uh, a skin sample. There's an alien taking a skin sample in order to heal them. So I think it's not just in schools that we're that this imagery of biometrics is being accepted. I think it's in popular media as well. So um, and I'm that's only one aspect of it. I'm I'm not sure about all the media that children take in nowadays i don't i don't really have time to keep up with it but uh i think what i'm telling people in school is only a small part of uh, a small part of a larger of a larger sort of a larger plan because it doesn't seem like a coincidence that uh, this imagery of having chips in your hand and and taking fingerprints i'm sure it's across a lot of more popular shows but you'd have to speak to someone else about that because i'm i don't well really there's there's no doubt that it's an interlocking mechanism and that it's been it's mm. been studied and written about for for decades for a better part of a century now how science fiction is used to implant ideas in the public and hg wells was a very politically motivated person who was uh, who was very much tied in with the British gentry of the time and, and involved heavily involved in the eugenics movement and all of that and wrote the original draft charter of the UN, UN Charter of Human Rights and things like that and, um, and everyone yeah. just thinks he was you know war of the world or you know writing science fiction stories no he was really trying to implant ideas in the popular consciousness and and I think anyone who thinks that uh, science fiction to a large extent isn't used for that type of thing would be deluding themselves and and lots of other popular media as well of course and um, we have many many examples of that but uh, but to me it's disturbing that so much of it is aimed at children and uh, and as you say uh, these children are growing up thinking that this is usual and uh, in in 20 years from now we could see a very very different society with very few people bothering to even bat an eyelash eyelash over the types of changes that are that are about to take place in Unless we can, I guess, indoctrinate, inculcate a, a, a different sense of, of what these technologies are and where they're potentially heading. Yes, exactly. Yes, we, yes, we need to. And I, uh, yes, I. Well, I'm skeptical in class about global warming, but uh, I need to think about other things I can do. And uh, maybe oh, well, what I could do is all I could do is offer my opinion in class to the students and uh, see if that gets across to some of them. But it's it's quite a it's quite a large machine that uh, we're dealing with and uh, yes sorry i was gonna i was gonna say something else sorry it's gone um but yes yes it is it is across all society um oh yes well sorry what i was gonna say yes there's a link i've sent a link link of a, a government document which actually acknowledges the fact um as one of the counter arguments to biometrics that um we the government uses uh, the document says uses those words people might think that we're softening children up um, by using them in schools, 
to make to introduce something later so i think the the government is well aware of the fact that if you introduce children to something then they'll be more pro, uh, likely to accept it which is probably why that supermarkets haven't yet got biometric uh, fingerprint systems in yet because uh, when i was a child you know i had uh, i got a you know i had a debit card when i was 14 but that's about as high tech as it got um so now this is the next stage it'll take it'll take a while i think they know that it'll take a while and so in the next generation there may be another stage but um yes it's it's definitely aimed at children and uh, the government know that if they if they're in if in their own documents they're printing that as a counter argument for them to argue um the case for and as you Same. pointed out, this this isn't being introduced in a contextless a contextless way with no no opposing viewpoint or no no critical thinking about what's really being introduced and no no sense of the background of biometrics or where it came from or Francis Galton or all of that type of history and and where that really came from and what it was meant for. So so when it's introduced in a contextless way without any devoid of any meaning or any scrutiny, then it, obviously people are going to be uh, more likely than not to just simply take it on board and accept it as part of their life. Yes, yes. I can read the I can read the bit of the textbook about biometrics if if you want. Uh, I've do, got it yes. in front of me. Yes, the right. So uh, it's uh, Ben reads a lot. He changes his library books every week. He used to have a library card, but now he just puts his finger in a scanner. It's very quick, and he doesn't have to worry about losing his card. Everybody's fingerprint has a unique pattern of lines. Even identical twins have slightly different fingerprints. Using fingerprints uh, f- features like fingerprints to identify people is called biometrics. Some of our other features are also unique. Most biometric systems use the shape of your face, the patterns on the coloured part of your eye, iris, or your fingerprints. But we also have unique voice prints and different ways of, of walking. Since 2007, biometric data has been added to every UK passport. So that's the um, that's that's a bit of the textbook that says how um, biometrics is very quick and convenient, and it also means that you have to carry around fewer cards. Um, then there's some questions, and then there's um, and then there's an activity uh, entitled "Which biometric feature to use?" So obviously, the bit at the top has mentioned several unique features that humans have. So this is when the students discuss um, what biometric feature could be used uh, to open your front door as you walk towards the house, or which would you be- uh, which would be best to check who needed to pay for a meal from the canteen. So it's coming up with ways in which biometrics could be used, but it doesn't mention anything about how it stores data. Um, it doesn't mention anything about um, how uh, anyone can keep track of what you're buying or what you're borrowing from the library or when you when you enter your house, um, which is very sensitive data. I'm sure if that fell into the wrong hands, then burglars would uh, burglars would be running towards your house as soon as you left it. So um, it's all it's all presented in a positive light in the sense it's all very convenient. It's just there for our convenience and nothing else. I will once again commend the full interview with James Roberts to the listener's attention, and if you go and follow the link to interview 350 with James Roberts, you'll see the some of the documents that he sent to me, including actual um, parts of the textbook that he uses to teach from, talking about how global warming is uh, all man-made, and all scientists uh, agree with that 100%, talking about how uh, how biometrics are such a useful thing and, and a wonderful new introduction to society, and how GM crops, are, again, are a great solution to the problem facing humankind, and even a uh, official government response to concerns about biometrics in the schools. Again, some very interesting documents, so I hope you will go and start researching that further. But I think the point has been established that the schools really are turning into prisons, and even more horrifying, 
No one seems to mind that fact. That, to me, is the sign that we as a society are starting to be indoctrinated, not just the youth and not just a small segment of the, the population, but everyone as a whole is being really steeped in a system where we're just accepting more and more infringements of basic human rights and freedoms. But on the note of combating this, and on something of a something of a more hopeful note at least, of course there are teachers and people who are in the system who recognize the system for what it is and are attempting to fight back against it. I will commend to you the website academicfreedom.ca as a website that is compiling the uh, case histories of various Canadian uh, professors who are really challenging the system and trying to stake out a claim for academic freedom within the education, or should that be the indoctrination system that we are unfortunately steeped in more and more each day. On that website, you'll find the case history, for example, of Denis Rancourt, who is a physics professor, or should I say was a tenured physics professor at the University of Ottawa. And back in the fall of 2005, he began a process that he referred to as academic squatting, i.e. taking over a course, a first-year physics course that was intended to be on a different subject, and instead using that as a way of exploring how science not only impacts everyday life, but how it relates to greater power structures in society. Now, that was obviously a very much a boat-rocking experience for the University of Ottawa, which freaked out, and on the second uh, class of that uh, of that course, the dean of science actually came in and told the course, that told everyone there that the course had been cancelled and that uh, he wouldn't be allowed to te- continue teaching. But when the students basically revolted against that, eventually the university was forced to allow that course to proceed. And then, over the course of the next few years, Denis Rancourt fought a valiant battle against the University of Ottawa, eventually establishing a an activism course um, and really bringing in people who were talking about real subjects and, and really challenging the authority of the, the university and really pushing the boundaries of academic freedom, freedom for a tenured professor. And then, sadly enough, in 2008, 2009, he began to lose that battle. And in 2008, he was actually banned from entering his own laboratory on campus. And then eventually in 2009, he was arrested for trespassing on campus, if you can actually believe that. Uh, eventually, he was he was fired and has lost his, his professorship. So it's an absolutely ridiculous story in a lot of ways, but very fascinating and very interesting to learn about a, a, a professor who really put his uh, job where his mouth is in, in many respects and really was trying to carve out a space for academic freedom within the confines of academia. So in that sense, at least, it is a hopeful story. Although, of course, in seeing the response that came to that activism, it's uh, well not so hopeful. But earlier this year, again, I had the chance to talk to Denis Rancourt about his story and about the possibility of activism in the classroom and, and teaching activism and, and getting students to, to rebel. So we had a very wide-ranging and I think very interesting conversation that touched on a lot of these topics and explored them in, I think, a very thoughtful and philosophical manner. So I would, of course, once again, commend the full interview to your attention. But right now we're going to listen to a clip from that interview in which I ask Denis Ancora about the philosophy underlying activism in the classroom. Well, I think learning, you know, uh, the, 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 the discoveries of pedagogy that were well described are fairly old. I mean, the, the, a, a lot of this stuff was developed and written about very clearly in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think the most influential 
pedagogy is that of Paulo Ferreira. Uh, he wrote a, a landmark book that was entitled Pedagogy of the Oppressed, or uh, Pedagogy of Liberations, others call it. In, in, in North America, we call it uh, critical pedagogy. Um, so th this was a landmark book that explained um, how true learning occurs and how it needs to be based in, in an environment such as ours, where we're subjected to a dominance hierarchy, uh, true learning needs to be based in uh, authentic rebellion. In other words, the student needs to discover within themselves uh, an authentic rebellion. Otherwise, they will um, fall apart and, and go into self-destruction and, and all kinds of uh, behaviors, or they'll adopt the ideology and destroy themselves that way, the ideology of the system. So this, this authentic rebellion is what motivates what Paulo Ferreira called the praxis of liberation. And uh, by praxis, he means um, that you are acting to fight against your own oppression, and that action uh, causes the system to respond. There's a backlash, so it informs you about the true nature of the system. That causes you to analyze what's going on, to reflect. Uh, because you're being subjected to this backlash, your reflection is particularly keen, and you're particularly, uh, you, you learn very quickly under those circumstances. And uh, then uh, you, you, you think of what your next action is going to be to protect yourself and to push your liberation further. So this is called the praxis of liberation. And um, uh, Paulo Ferreira explained that, you know, this, this is how true learning occurs. And he, he applied this uh, to teach literacy to uh, peasants in Latin America. With, with great success, and he developed this whole pedagogy around that. So he found that the greatest barrier uh, when it comes to this kind of learning is that the slave, um, whether you're uh, talking about wage slavery or actual slaves that he was working with in Latin America in the 70s, um, the, the, the biggest barrier to learning is that the slave um, does not acknowledge that they're a slave. They don't recognize it. Um, they will say things like, we need the master, he protects us, he organizes our work, where would we be without you know, this structure, basically? So um, the pedagogy involves exercises that uh, catalyze an awareness about this condition that the slaves are being subjected to, and then initiates um, uh, this praxis that I was describing. So I think that's the most powerful pedagogical theory that's ever been developed. And it's the one that I have been trying to apply for years in my classrooms. So I've been applying it in a first world context where um, it, it, it's about uh, what is being oppressed or suppressed from us is our political agency. So um, students and members of society are not allowed to have influence uh, in society. Um, it, it, the, the structures are such that it's completely removed from us. And therefore, that, that is a strong uh, type of oppression for middle classers, let's say, in the first world, so since that's the category I'm in. And since Paulo Ferreri explained, and I believe this, that you, you can, when you're fighting uh, uh, for justice, you can only fight your own oppression. So you have to fight from where you're at, from your class position, given the advantages you have, you fight that hierarchy of dominance against your own oppression and all of those struggles coalesce and 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 cross classes eventually as you bring that dominance pyramid down so um 
by applying that, I would apply it in the classroom to students. Now, that there, there were even homeless people in, in some of my classrooms because I would open it to the community. So I was trying to find ways that everyone could fight their own oppression and how we could share stories about it and so on um, in, in order to learn what we needed to learn to do that. And you, you find that you learn very quickly, whether it's legal things, uh, theoretical knowledge, whatever you need to uh, liberate yourself, you learn very efficiently and very quickly. Uh, Paulo Ferreira um, used to give the example that um, when you're teaching literacy, for example, um, if, if you're looking at a laborer who is basically working under slave-like conditions, and you write a sentence on the board, which is, the land belongs to he who works it. Well, the, the laborer learns how to read and write very quickly uh, when you start with sentences like that. Um, so uh, it connects to their lives directly and to their agency in the world and to their place in the world. And that, that's the kind of learning that is uh, true and deep and connects to the person where, 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 where the knowledge really becomes part of you and you can use it to act in the world. And so that, that's the theory that I was uh, trying to use, and it's, it's well known. And, you know, the, the so-called critical pedagogues in North America read the same book and uh, talk the language, but don't actually apply it in the classroom. I mean, it's, it's another one of these diversions uh, that they, it, 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 it's a trick. I mean, you can't, you can't um, accept the dominance of the school administration. Uh, you can't accept the imposed structure and the fact that you're going to have authoritarian power over the students in the classroom as a prerequisite and then apply something that you call critical pedagogy. That's just nonsense. So when pedagogues approach me um, and they say, you know, I agree, I read the book, that's what I try to do as well. I always, the first question I always ask them is, do you grade your students? You know, do you have power over them? Do you impose your view on them or are they or do you create a situation where they're completely free to disagree with you and where they come to understand that they can and they can even ask you to leave the classroom while they discuss things about how the class is going to be run? You know, do you create those situations? Are, are you real? Are you for real? And, uh, you know, 99 percent of the time uh, they're not for real and the discussion stops there. That's interesting because I, I noted when I was reading through some of the, the media and interviews that you've done over the years, I found it interesting that the, the media, especially the mainstream media that, that's uh, written about you or interviewed you, has, has really focused on the, the issue of grading. And it, it seems to be almost to the exclusion of any other issue that, uh, that was brought up in this course. So, so I guess we should get into this a, a little bit. Tell people about your, your uh, approach to grading in your activism course and, and what kind of trouble that landed you in. Right. Well, you know, the reason the mainstream media, um, I think, focused on grading is twofold. One is that the university publicly said, I mean, the pretext the university used to fire me was that I had graded fraudulently, okay, that there was academic fraud, how I was grading, which is completely the opposite of the situation. In fact, my, my grading was an integral part of my pedagogical method and, and uh, was... Uh, applied very consciously as part of that pedagogical method. So that's one thing um, that caused the media to concentrate on that. And the other thing is that everyone who's been to school, who's been oppressed by that system, 
knows that the instrument of oppression is grades. So everyone can relate to grades. And the people who have survived the system um, um, want, you know, one of the first reactions of the slave is to want to be oppressed fairly. So if people have been subjected to it and they bought into it, they don't want others to get off from being uh, subjected to exactly that kind of dominance. And so there's, there's the, the slaves guard the system in a sense. And so it's a hot topic when you start to talk about grading and grades and the pedagogical method. Um, the, the, the people who have been subjected to the most harsh indoctrinations and, and oppressions at school actually have come to believe or they the self-talk is that this is how they learn this is how one learns that you need this in order to learn and of course the opposite is true you don't learn this way at all you it, it prevents you from learning and 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 true authentic learning actually occurs by a completely different mechanism so um it's because I guess that the media could see that there would be broad interest in it so they they they, they really did concentrate on that and you're right um, the alternative media, fortunately, was uh, really interested in the pedagogical uh, dimension of, of my case. More information about Denis Roncourt's case can be found at academicfreedom.ca, and his own personal blog can be found at activistteacher.blogspot.com, and I would commend both sources to you as as really places where you can begin to explore the concept of academic freedom as it relates to academia in general. And there are a lot of thought-provoking essays and things available at his, his website, so again, I will leave you to explore that on your own time. But as those who have listened to the greater part of that interview know, I find myself somewhat skeptical about the idea of really being able to free ourselves and free our minds within the confines of the classroom. The structure, the, the setting, the everything related to the context of such an environment seems to breed into it that type of dominance hierarchy that Denis Rancourt was so valiantly fighting against and which I'm not sure can ever be escaped when we are trapped in the confines of academia. So the question then becomes, how did this system get put into place? By whom was it put into place? And for what purpose was it put into place? Now, this is a topic that we have explored before on the podcast. And I would, as as always, I would recommend John Taylor Gatto's excellent work on this subject as the place that people should begin and continue to explore this subject. But today we're going to take a listen to an interview that I just conducted this week with Richard Andrew Grove of TragedyAndHope.com. And as longtime listeners of this podcast will know, of course, The Corbett Report is part of the independent media crew at TragedyAndHope.com, and I'm honored to be associated with people like Richard Andrew Grove. And, of course, he has been concentrating quite a lot in his podcast, Peace Revolution, uh, at PeaceRevolution.org, on the concept of education, self-education, and the trivium. And I will, of course, uh, once again commend the Peace Revolution podcast to all the listeners out there as an excellent podcast that really does complement the Corbett Report and Media Monarchy and the other Tragedy and Hope podcasts, I think, in an excellent manner. It really does help to flesh out various areas that, that I would love to cover, but, uh, but when Richard Andrew Grove does it, he does it in such a thorough way that I don't really need to cover it. It's already been done. So, so again, it's an excellent source of information, and I do learn new things uh, every single episode. So once again, I would commend people to listen to Peace Revolution. But right now, let's take a listen to that interview with Richard Andrew Grove, where we explore the foundations of the public schooling system and what it was really designed for. And ultimately, there will be 
at the very end of today's episode something of a solution or a way out of the the mind trap that we've been forced into. But for right now, let's continue defining and exploring the problem itself with Richard Grove of TragedyAndHope.com. Well, now we've talked about what public school is not. So let's define what public school is. Public school, notice it's not called public education, it's called public schooling. The ideas behind public schooling, whether today or 2,000 years ago in Rome, were you know, to teach the people how to be, you know, to teach crowd control, to teach things to the masses that enable them to be controlled by the few. It's an artificial extension of childhood in the last 60 years because you can look at the textbooks from the 1950s. These textbooks speak about the importance of independent thought, how to have debates, all these sort of things that you would need to have a healthy community and, and strong civic responsibility. Those textbooks have been changed drastically in the last 60 years, and the purposes of schooling have – they've lost their facade where it, you know the facade of it's actually about education and it's gotten down to it is about indoctrinating and training habits and making sure that everyone in the class thinks it the same way about certain things that makes everyone predictable it makes statistics and forecasting predictable for the government etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean so um this started in its most realistic form in 1918 and there's a book that is cited by gatto in the interview that <laughs> Once we heard it, we're like, we all got to look this book up. So several of us have attained copies of it. It's called uh, si- I'm sorry. It's called uh, Principles of Secondary Education. It was printed in 1918, and it's uh, it's a Yale book. So uh, or maybe it's Harvard. But the point is, <laughs> in there, this guy Ingalls defines the six purposes of education, and the people who have created the whole system they've been working off a plan. So these. These six steps have continued to remain in effect till today. So when you think about what do we still use from 1918, aside from things like Federal Reserve, but (laughs) there's not a whole lot from 1918 that we still use in its current form, except the design of public schooling. And so the design of public schooling gets around these six points, the first being the adjustive function. This is the establishment of fixed habits of reaction for each student. So if there's a fire, everybody acts a certain way. If there's uh, some other accident, everyone acts a certain way. If someone says this sort of thing, everyone reacts a certain way. So it's, uh, it's Skinnerian or Pavlovian programming of, of students. The second is the integrative function, which is the development of like-mindedness, unity of thoughts, habits, standards, ideals, all the sort of things that we're supposed to aspire to. This is where we got the notion of the American dream. This sort of thing is instilled through... School. This is why they need us for 15,000 hours. It's not just about education. Uh, the fourth, did I get to the, th- oh, the third is the directive function. It tells you what you're to do. It marks you in your social class for are you going to be a plumber? Are you going to be a technician? Are you going to be an engineer? Are you going to be a doctor? These sort of things. So part of the teacher's job is to label you and to basically set you on this path for your future. The differentiating function is to assure social solidarity takes advantages of differences among students to divide and conquer and ensure they don't have enough upward mobility in life. So it cements you in your social caste. You're labeled. It's the teacher's job to label you. And then you're set in your social caste, and you're not supposed to really be mobile from that, which is the same thing that Darwin says or the Anglican religion says, because these things are all tied together through the the, uh, phenomenon of schooling. 
The fifth would be the selective function. This is the elimination of individuals who do not meet the managerial class's criteria for future workers. So if you're a bright, intelligent, curious young person who likes to learn, guess what? You don't really fit in in the corporate world. They don't want people with integrity and morals and ethics and standards and you know protocols of how to get things done. They don't want that. They want good little worker bees who aren't going to question anything. And the propydeutic function, which is the sixth, is there to identify the next managerial uh, generation of the elite. So these are the people who are going to run things, and they don't need people who aren't in that class to learn how to run things. That doesn't really fit in with their system. So what you find is you've got this strange functioning of the public school system. So the question is, why do public schools have that form and function? Well, to answer that question, you look at where does it originate? Public schooling in its current form today originates back in the early 1900s with the Vanderbilt family, the Astor family, the Carnegie family, the Rockefeller family, all these robber baron families who created the teachers' pensions and then gave teachers tenure, which is a guarantee that they can't be fired as long as they play along with certain rules. And this is enough to get teachers to lie to our children for the past hundred years. It's a system that keeps working, so they haven't fixed it yet. How am I doing? Oh, I think that was a mouthful and a half. Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, Rich, as someone who prides himself on his vocabulary, I must admit I have never in my life encountered the word propydeutic or even could guess at the etymology of that word. So that's something that on my to-do list, look up that I'm, word. I'm pretty sure it's a Greek word and it has to do with adults and children, but I'm, I, I would likewise need to do some more uh, epistemological nomenclature research on that. <laughs> Interesting. But, uh, well, well, the AE <laughs> kind of gives it away as, I think, a Greek etymology, but but anyway, um, absolutely fascinating stuff. And, and just my observation on that, as someone who has not only taught in the education system for several years, but actually taught in, in Japan specifically, I must say that the Japanese do an absolutely marvelous job of those six functions and, and really do uh, follow them to a T. And it, it, to me, that what that suggests perhaps most interestingly is the way in which the, uh, the cultural imperialism has really spread this idea out throughout the globe. Because having read a, a fascinating history of some of the historical uh, educators here in Japan. I know that this is very much not the way that uh, education used to function in Japan. So I think there's been a, a very concerted effort to really introduce this system and to and to make it part of the system. Probably, I imagine introduced uh, during the period of American administration after the World War II. So, so absolutely uh, fascinating stuff, and and it is spreading out across the globe. And um, the the question really, I guess, is how to stop it. Well, the way to stop it is to buy uh, is by learning. Let's let's learn two more minutes of history about uh, Japan and the Prussian education system, which is what I was just referring to, because it's the import it's the importation of Prussian education to America that corrupts the entire education system. I happen to know because I interviewed Gatto and he talks about this, and it's it's fascinating what you can learn when you when you interview somebody, right? Uh, he tells this great story about Admiral Perry and how Japan was really opened up to trade, and it was by threat of force and coercion and fraud and and all these beautiful things that are the American way. But what he what he says thereafter really shocked me, and it was that because of how this character Wilhelm Wundt, who created the Prussian PhD system, so anyone who has a PhD today, the lineage goes back to this guy who created it, Wilhelm Wundt. Wundt uh, lived in Prussia. And they came up with the idea after they had lost this war against Napoleon at uh, Battle of Jena in uh, 1805 
that the reason that their soldiers lost is because they're too well-educated and that people who are really well-educated don't make good soldiers because you do logical things like ask questions while you're fighting and while you're risking your life and these sort of things. So they wanted to dumb down their entire population to make them a militaristic society. It worked so well, they then exported it around the world. And in the late 1800s, Japan loved this idea so much, you know, so much that they imported the Prussian constitution almost word for word. So if you see a Prussian influence in the education system there, it's not alone. It, it doesn't stop at China either. Gatto said he's been to China six times. They keep wanting to under, you know, they know that they're controlling people like machines, but they, and they want to keep it that way, but they want the people to be more happy as they're being treated. They want them to learn to love their servitude. And so this is just the irony of, you know, you have nations who understand that, yes, we're treating our people like they're machines and have no soul, but we want them to be happy about it. And will you help us figure it out, right? And so it's by learning that history that we can put a stop to it because it's only when you are not intellectually able to defend yourself or physically able to defend yourself that you get into trouble. The big deal is that most people, you're not fist fighting every day. This isn't, you know, the Wild West. This, you know, we don't need violence, but we do need intellectual self-defense because we are being attacked on a cognitive level, bombarded every day, all day. And if you have the methods to dispel confusion and to be able to deal with these things uh, and see them in their totality, in their context, in a comprehensive nature, you're much better able to learn about them, figure out what the moving parts are, what they've taken out, and how to put it back. It all becomes very simple once you take away the complexity. Absolutely. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. I mean, I, I must uh, plead ignorance of, of the history of, of Japan. I mean, I know the, about Admiral Perry and the opening up of uh, Japan to, to outside trade during the Meiji era, but I don't really know about the importation of the Prussian constitution, but that, that does certainly make the penny drop in terms of, you know, the, the formation of the German-Japanese axis back in World War One, World War Two. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. So um, definitely I need to do more self-schooling on that topic. But, but again, I think it goes to show the, the exportation of this cultural system that that has unfortunately been taken over by a lot of governments that of course like to keep their people dumbed down and unquestioning and try to make them happy while they do so um i guess we've touched on this a little bit in terms of who's responsible for public schooling you you pinpointed private schooling uh, origins in in uh, darwin but how about public schooling where does it come from who does it come from what are the philosophical roots of this system well, traditionally in civilization, since uh, you know, since there have been towns and communities and what have you not, kids were taught at home, usually by their parents, and if not, they had a local teacher. And this was all done informally, non-governmentally. It was done, you know, with uh, form and function in mind. And what you have is uh, that comes up through, you know, the dark ages. That's just people are still being taught at home. And up through about 1300, 1400, the first organized public schools appear in Scotland, but only kind of a, as a function of the Templars' exodus, it seems. What you have then is the, the schools being put together by communities, so you do have public schooling, but there's no mandate per se. And when you get around to universal mandated forced you know, compulsory schooling, which is what public schools are all around the world, they have truant officers and school taxes and all these sort of other sort of things. This was all created more recently in the last hundred years by the, the rich aristocratic elite robber baron families like the Rockefellers, Carnegie's, Astors, Vanderbilt's, uh, early 1900s. Um, around that time, Standard Oil was having a lot of problems with labor. 
and uh, there were there was the Ludlow massacre. There was all these sort of things that were drawing attention to the nature of these corporations and their capitalist uh, antics that were against you know human survival in many cases. And there was this, uh, I believe he was a Baptist minister named Frederick T. Gates who approached Rockefeller and he said, look, you got to let me handle your money. You need this thing called philanthropy. It's going to convince everyone that you're a great guy. And uh, so Rockefeller and, and Gates partner up. Well, then Rockefeller creates the General Education Board. He invests millions of dollars into it. And then he appoints Frederick T. Gates to be the first you know, executive director of this General Education Board. So what you have are people like Carnegie, who also had labor problems, learning how to buy the public. And you buy the public either through your foundations or your donations. Or In Carnegie's case, he donated an organ to all these different churches. And then, of course, even though he's an atheist, all these churches thought he's a great guy. Uh, with Rockefeller, he had multiple philanthropies, but the Rockefeller Foundation and its affiliate foundations, the Ford Foundation and some of these other ones, uh, Carnegie Foundation, Carnegie Endowment, are all instrumental in creating, literally creating and mandating from the top down the public school system in America. And during the 40s and 50s, there were several, there was uh, the Walsh Committee in 1918 and then the Cox and the Reese Committees in the 1950s that looked into the origins of foundations and, and the nature of their antics and activities with schools. And what they found was, the elite uh, you know, corporations that had created these foundations as proxies were then being used to undermine everything about the American way of life and the Canadian way of life and Japanese way of life by removing and redefining. More importantly, it's, it's, it's a process of redefining their culture. And so when, when people come in and, and spend a lot of time with you and take you away from your parents at a young age, you become very you know, influenced by those people. And if you, especially if you think they're there to help you and to teach and, and make you learn or help you to learn. But in reality, what you find are kids are stripped, literally stripped of their curiosity, their creativity, their self-reliance, their self-esteem. Anything that could make them a solid, responsible grown-up eventually is stripped away. And that, that leaves somebody who has to be totally dependent, you know, like an like a adolescent for everything. You think you know what's going on as a teenager, but you really don't. You're not paying the bills, you know, at that know-it-all age. They've created a whole culture where no matter what age you are, you think you know what's going on. And yet you've never put any research into defining anything around you, so you depend on what people have told you it is. And even though there's a lot of, you know, well-meaning, well-intentioned people, are they well-informed? Are they using their five senses and ob observing reality and finding something that's objective that actually exists? Or have they skipped all those steps of verifying their reality? And are we discussing something that's arbitrary and insubstantial and actually a waste of our time, a rabbit hole? There is a way to get to the end of the rabbit hole, but you have to ask the right questions in the right order, and that's the methodology. Once again, Richard Grove of TragedyAndHope.com and, of course, PeaceRevolution.org. And I will once again invite listeners to listen to that entire interview so that you can hear more of the context of what we were talking about and how it dovetails into really the whole gamut of things that we're concerned about at the Corbett Report. Because although we do concern ourselves with lots of different issues and in many different fields from false flag terrorism to the uh, central banking hoax to the encroaching police state to the operations of the eugenics-obsessed elite who have found their ways into positions of power in our society – 
All of those topics really are fundamentally related because they have to do with A, the type of information that we are receiving, B, how we are receiving that information, and C, perhaps most importantly, how we are either educated to understand or miseducated to misunderstand the information that we are being presented with. So once again, I think one of the absolute keys to understanding what is happening in our society is to understand the history of how we've arrived at this spot in history. Because although we are often presented with our society, our civilization, as if it were some monolithic whole that has been here forever and is immutable and unchangeable and just is what it is, so it doesn't need to be questioned, of course the exact opposite is the case. Without questioning how we got to where we are and how the institutions in our society were formed, we will never be able to really offer a fundamental or a sound critique of those systems. How can we possibly critique the system if we tend to think of it as some sort of unchangeable thing that has always existed. Of course, we have to understand how these institutions have developed and how power has operated to oppress people in the past. Because once again, if we do not know history, we are doomed to repeat it. And we are repeating. We are repeating right now all of the different structures of tyranny that have come along in the past, and they're being integrated and put together in, I think, very deliberate ways to once again try to oppress people as a whole. And once again, in order to get ourselves out of that, we have to understand the system that, as it's being constructed around us. So on that note, as a final note on today's episode, and hopefully as a way of getting ourselves out of this cycle of history and oppression and violence. Well, the answer is to, of course, educate ourselves about that history and to really understand where it comes from. Which is why I am so glad that Richard Grove used the beginning of that conversation that we just listened to an excerpt from to talk about his new project, The Ultimate History Lesson, A Day with John Taylor Gatto. And as listeners to the Peace Revolution podcast will know, he, uh, Richard Grove managed to get John Taylor Gatto and actually uh, commandeered him for a few days. And they spent a weekend basically talking together and filming an extensive interview. And the results, the fruits of that interview are about to be released as a, a DVD set. It's a five-hour interview, so it will be either, either available on multiple DVDs or on a single Blu-ray disc uh, in high definition, and it will contain all of the footnotes to explore the, the various things that are talked about in, in that interview. So I haven't seen this yet. I, I, don't, I don't know the specifics of it, but I am very much looking forward to it myself because I know John Taylor Gatto is an absolute fount of information on this topic, and to really get to pick his brain for a weekend, and especially by someone like Richard Grove, who, who is so immersed in this topic and knows the question to ask. It must, uh, uh, well, I'm looking very much forward to this. So the details of how people are going to be able to get this are still being finalized, but, but ultimately it will be available for free viewing on YouTube, of course. Um, but for those who want to, to support the work and also to, to really have a high-quality set of DVDs or Blu-ray disc that they can use to study from and, and use as a learning tool and use as a study group tool or whatever people might use it for, well, of course, that will be available from tragedyandhope.com or from any of the partner media sites, including mediamonarchy.com and corbettreport.com. And there will be a widget available for people to, to donate and to receive that, uh, that DVD set or that Blu-ray disc. 
so that they can begin exploring that history for themselves and educating themselves and empowering themselves with the information that they need to form a more accurate map of reality, as Richard Grove likes to use that, that analogy. And I agree with it wholeheartedly. Ultimately, education is a system of gaining uh, the tools to be able to understand the, the terrain that we find ourselves in and to be able to create a map through which we can comp navigate and uh, f basically direct ourselves around in this world. And if we are given an inaccurate map, we are going to go down blind alleys, we're going to be directed into, into the wrong path, and we're going to end up in a place we never wanted to be. So in order to get where we want to be, in a space of freedom and liberty, where we can work together as a society and live in harmony and in peace... Well, we have to be able to construct an accurate map of reality. So I hope that this history, uh, the Ultimate History Project, will help people to do that. And that's why I am very much behind this and very much looking forward to it myself. But on that note, I will, as always, leave you to begin doing your own research using these uh, source documents that are available in the documentation section of today's episode as the basis for that or the beginning of that search. But of course, as always, I leave you to continue doing this research on your own time because this is not me sitting on high trying to... Uh, act like some sort of godly teacher teaching you what you need to know. I'm just the person who's saying that, I, that I'm on my own quest of self-discovery and I'm hoping that you're along for the ride and uh, an active participant because that's the only way that we will be able to overcome the miseducation of our society. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, hoping that you will join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at corbettreport.com.